Welcome to today's episode of Diversity and Inclusion, Revolution or Reform, where we talk all things DNI to ask whether DNI can save us, get us free, or move us towards collective liberation. I'm Connie. And I'm David. Each week on this podcast, we'll get into whether DNI is revolution or reform with guests who are DNI practitioners, activists, organizers, or academics and researchers in the field. We talk strategy, mindsets, growth, learnings, and mistakes, and even some juicy DNI confessions. Because at the end of each day, we're all humans just trying to do our best. I'm super excited for today's episode. Farzine Farzad is an innovative thought leader and practitioner of diversity, equity, and inclusion with experience in higher ed, local government, and the private sector. He holds master's degrees in international affairs and diplomacy, as well as a certificate in conflict resolution. Farzine leverages his unique academic background, extensive travel experiences, and experiential knowledge to provide deep, thought-provoking local and global approaches to DEI work. In addition to DEI training and education programs, Farzine is a seasoned DEI project manager with expertise and strategies that build equitable workplace environments, equitable government services, as well as employee resource groups, events, and programs. He is also the founder and principal consultant at Critical Equity. Farzine, thank you so much for being here today. Thank you. It's an honor. It's an honor to be here. Appreciate it. I am so excited to have you here, Farzine, because I am connected with you on LinkedIn and I just like love reading everything you put out. And we always start our podcast with asking our guests to share the lineage of your work in the DNI space, how you came into it, and just however you want to take that question in terms of your lineage. Sure. So I kind of got into the space like haphazardly a little bit. So in my 20s, I was uh, big on human rights, and I kind of worked in the human rights space for a little bit. Started off doing ethnic and religious rights in Iran, greater Middle East, kind of got into that world for a little bit. After that, did some kind of soul-searching, worked in some foundations, and eventually traveled abroad, did my second master's abroad in, in, in the country of Azerbaijan. And upon returning, you know, I was like, okay, looking for the first thing that came along because I was back in the country, and I, was, I had to, you know, kind of somewhat start over a little bit. So I got, I got started in higher education, doing human resources work, and then kind of did a little bit of lobbying for myself. Like, look, I, I, you know, I studied ethnic politics. I studied identity-based issues. I have this experience. I've studied it abroad. Like, I've, I've, I've seen how these things play out on a global scale. You know, I think there's some transferable skills here. So moved into doing more and more DEI work in, in higher education, eventually went to the private sector. Um, did some DEI work for, you know, corporate law, then local government. So did workforce kind of DEI work in local government and then equity work, you know, kind of for the, the county itself, like for the constituents, not only just the workforce. And then last summer, I decided to start my own firm based on all of the aggregated experience. So in different different areas. So it's been great so far. I have a number of very diverse group of clients so which has given me an opportunity to kind of see how a lot of this plays out in different areas and different sectors. So, you know, I'm, I'm very at minimum content, but also very happy with where I am right now. So it's been great. Yeah, like one of the things that I appreciate about transparency, this isn't the first time you and I have spoken, but one of the things that I appreciate about you and the way that you work is the vast array of experiences that you've had across government, education, the private sector. And, you know, 
we all know, and everyone listening to this knows, quote unquote, diversity and inclusion efforts in each of those spaces looks differently and doesn't necessarily have the same goals of equity and justice and doesn't necessarily define those things the same. At Critical Equity, where you are now being very explicit about equity and justice being at the forefront, you know, how do you define those words and how is that different from some of the things that you've experienced in the past? Very interesting question. So, drastically different approaches at times. You have your foundational values and you bring them with you wherever you go for critical equity. And let me take a a second here. The the reason why I chose the name critical equity was because I I have this over time, I've developed this very systemic approach to this work. I, I believe building good systems lends itself to better behaviors in the workplace. And then eventually that lends itself to better individual outcomes and, and you know, individual uh, sort of sentiments and, and positive well-being, you know, in, in the workplace itself. So I, I come from a, like the foundation is equity and justice. And then I move into, you know, interpersonal communication and then individual kind of relationship with your, with your organization. And I talk about society as well too. So, so that the, the equity piece came from that. The critical piece came from my affinity in, in, in graduate school for critical theory and then critical race theory and all these very deconstructionist approaches to our reality, essentially, right? So there is a strong like philosophical component to a lot of what I do. So it's almost very revolutionary. So like completely change how you're viewing your relationship to your own labor and the labor of your colleagues and how your you show up with your identity into the workplace and how your colleagues show up and how those things can coexist and at minimum coexist, but like thrive in in, in the workplace in a much better system. And so that system is what I focus on. So when I talk about equity and justice, you know, aside from, you know, the diversity inclusion stuff, which is much easier, right? It's just diversity is about representation, inclusion is about interpersonal interaction, interpersonal communication, you know, being valued, like your ideas moving through the, through the, through the chain and kind of things like that. Those things are take minimal intervention and, and just basically, you know, training on a managerial level. The the hard part is the systemic interventions, right? So when we talk about equity and justice, I like to talk about building a better complete workplace. And that at least in the very minimum requires two things, which is one, a dismantling of systemic barriers for people who've been historically excluded in decision-making capacity in the workplace and thriving in the workplace, and two, allocating resources where they need to go to accommodate for these broad societal issues that have hurt people in the past. So that is just like bare minimum equity. If you continue down the path, what I'm proposing is, and this is kind of like going into a a little bit of a rebranding that I'm doing with my organization, moving from traditional DEI to what I call organizational justice. There's literature out there. So I'm branding myself as an organizational justice consultant. And that entails a much deeper sort of ground up uprooting of the inherent power structures that exist in your organization to share power and then hopefully eventually share and distribute wealth within your organization. And then use that sort of democratizing and decolonial mentality in your workplace to get a sense for this is how democracy should work and then hopefully get that, you know, kind of go on with it, do, go democratize everything, right? Society, like your, your very, uh, respective institutions and things like that. So 
that is kind of the direction that I'm taking it. But you know, the core equity and justice stuff are are rooted in in, in systems change, are rooted in the relationship with HR. How's your employee handbook? Pay? How are you making decisions? How are you distributing tasks? You know, all these things. In if you want to maintain that hierarchical uh, structure, but but there is a next step. You know, there is a if you want true equity and true justice, you'll unravel the capitalist culture of a hierarchical, rigid hierarchy that exists in your organization. Hmm. I want to live in that world that you're building, Farzine. <laughs> it is quite revolutionary. <laughs> Let me help you build it. What I'm hearing is that you really work at all levels in a very holistic, systemic approach. And it's so funny because David and I was actually like offline having this conversation about whether, you know, equity and justice is truly possible in corporate spaces because of the the capitalist society that we live in, where there is a hierarchy, really toxic dynamics of power. And so I'm, again, I want to live in the world that you're describing and in organizations that you're describing. And from your perspective and the work that you've been doing, do you think that true justice and equity is actually possible in the corporate space or in the private sector? Like, I, I'm actually like grappling with that. It's something that I wrestle with. And I'm wondering, like, how you kind of see that having done that work and working on that little, not little, but like reframe and rebrand. Yeah, I mean, it's I, I think at this point, it's not even a matter of belief anymore. It's happening in the absence of real mechanisms for employees to fight back. And specifically talking about unions and and sort of those like kind of the tension point of the capitalist hierarchy, right? The the union has always been at the forefront of pushing back for workers' rights. Because there's such low union unionization in this country, I think there is a growing popularity of moving toward more employee ownership models, ESOPs, worker-owned cooperatives, like just completely flattening the organization. And there's a, a number of different sort of working styles that are emerging, that's, which, which is part of what I'm researching now. And at first I was like, okay, so this idea is revolutionary, you know, like then, then I got, you know, I kind of started uh, looking at the Democracy at Work group. Dr. Richard Wolf has a podcast on, and he has a, he has a sort of like a little bit of a, a neo-Marxian economic background. And there's even like a Fortune 100 for co-ops, right? You know, Zappos moved into some kind of a power sharing decision making capacity model. Ace Hardware is a big co cooperative. You know, they compete with uh, Home Depot and Lowe's. These arrangements are very popular in Europe. There are better employee outcomes. And most importantly, for someone like me, these types of justice based organizations where we're kind of pushing back against the cap, like what capitalism, because capitalism at, at its root at its core is the centralization of wealth and power, right? So, you know, the whole point of uh, revolutionary politics is for the workers to seize the means of production, and so the workers to have a stake in the outcome and to be able to share in and not concentrate wealth at the very top, like where somebody's making 300 times uh, lowest paid individual contributor. So it's not a matter of belief anymore. This is, I believe this is the future. And so this is a space that I've encouraged a lot of DEI practitioners to start looking at, right? If you want true justice in the workplace, take a look at, this is the system that's going to lend itself. Otherwise, what we're doing 
in capitalist culture as DEI practitioners is consistently putting high energy into interventions, which are amounted to nothing more than band-aids. It's repeated uh, intervention upon intervention. We have to be vigilant about checking our mid-level managers to make sure they're being inclusive. Do we build that into you know performance management and all these things and like consistent language from the top, right? Like from leadership and all these things where it, it's it's a it's a level of sustained energy that is consistently required to have more positive outcomes in, in the workplace. Whereas my argument is build the justice from the ground up and it will automatically lend itself to better DEI outcomes. And that doesn't mean that the, the role of the DEI practitioner is gone. Like if you build a good system, that doesn't mean the remnants of an old system won't show up. Like people will make racist comments. People will make problematic statements and behaviors toward your LGBTQ colleagues. And then, you know, you're not completely anti-ableist in your workplace, right? There's, it's just a, it's an easier <laughs> to do, right? It's a lot of upfront energy to change the system and then more sustained, like, okay, so this issue has come up, but because the power is shared, you're automatically building in that psychological safety. You're automatically building in an inclusive culture so that, you know, the voices are kind of heard better, right? So that's my argument, right? Like, so when you kind of build this better working system, it has built in some the foundation for better DEI outcomes. And this is for the benefit of the DEI world. The interventions are much easier. They require much less energy. You're not consistently kind of selling to the top because the entire organization is flattened, right? Yeah, you are constantly articulating ideas like this that are, some would deem radical, and I think radical fits outside of the box. You know, when we were talking a little bit of before like if if people who are listening if you're not following Farzine on LinkedIn it's a, it's a must follow and you know even before Connie knew that like oh we were going to talk to you on the podcast like she had known of your posts on LinkedIn just because like you're this person like zero fucks given putting exactly what you mean out there and some of those ideas aren't mainstream accepted yet like even in this era of this reawakening of this movement towards racial justice right people are talking about creating more compassionate systems of capitalism often right not necessarily upending the system i'm curious you know as you are sharing these ideas, what kinds of people do you find who are gravitating towards these ideas? I think a lot of the times, like people who are in the working class, right, instead of the owning class are like, yeah, we definitely need this. Who are the people in those positions of power who are traditionally like rewarded by capitalism? How are they resonating with this or not? You know? Yeah, so I, I will say a lot of what I'm talking about uh, right now, I haven't even begun to try and implement it yet. You know, because I understand that the the system that I live in, I, we can't, you know, we're swimming in it. I can't escape it. What I typically uh, do is I'll present like two different ways of approaches, right? You have what DEI looks like in a hierarchical organizational model and what DEI looks like in a, in a uh, power sharing model, right? And so like I haven't gotten any biters that be like, oh yeah, take me to that complete like view of justice that you have. So it's not it's not extremely receptive. You know, I've only been in, in, in kind of doing this for a year now. So I'm actually curious to see what the future holds, if this idea is going to catch on. 
I'm being very open about it on LinkedIn because I am looking for, you know, people to work with, the clients to work with that are interested in in sort of this, but like people for the most part have opted to we don't want to we we want to we want to be more culturally flat. We don't want to be structurally flat, right? We want to yeah, we like the idea of heightened inclusion in decision making, but you know, our our roles and responsibilities are going to stay the same. And so if I said no to to that, then I, like I wouldn't have any clients. But like I think throughout this time, I soften. You know, this this is some of the ideas of the future of work, and this is this is what might happen. And so, if people are receptive to it, I kind of give some resources. Like for example, Project Equity, based out of Chicago, is helping organizations secure funding and kind of set the structure for employees to buy out their workplaces. And then kind of move from this capitalist to this worker-owned model. You know, I have several like people that I'm connected with that do sort of these trainings and help organizations move into actually how to make decisions based on shared capacity, right? Like, so one of one of them is uh, uh, a model called sociocracy. You know, it's a thing that came out of the Netherlands in the '70s, but there's been multiple like kind of things that have been uh, developed as a on top of that holacracy, humanocracy. There's a famous book now, so. Not very receptive, I will say. That's why I think right now it's, it's my it's my marketing tear to be able to be like, look, this is possible. You know, my clients are great. I'm so, so lucky. I think partially because of my LinkedIn presence that people know what they're going to get with with me and, and know the kind of straightforward attitude of this is, this is systems of oppression and this is what they look like in your workplace to the most granular detail is what I offer. But for you know, the super progressive stuff that we were talking about. I'm still kind of, one, just teasing it out a little bit, and two, haven't got any real biters on it. <laughs> right now, you're a team of one, right? Mm-hmm. Team of one, but actually I do have a partner that isn't really full-time, but she's a partner in my organization. Her name is Ulduz. She does my people analytics. We do uh, engagement surveys, and she does all the beautiful visualizations of the data, because we do believe in a very strong data-led approach to this work to kind of figure out where the very unique gaps are in the organization itself, and then that informs our interventions. Gotcha. So with your team of two, how do you like build that organizational justice approach from the foundation? How is that manifesting in the way that you're working right now? So I think hopefully, you know, we, we get to a point where we can, you know, Uldus can come on full time and I'll like bring in more people to kind of do this work. But the idea is to kind of take these models and experiment them internally, right? Like to, to figure out what, what's working. I think the biggest thing so far, the, the pushback uh, I hear is practicality. Like, is this practical for us? And I think this, the fear is in the nuances, like, what if this comes up? I don't know what to do. Like, what if this very specific issue comes up? I don't know what to do. And so I do partner with people that know these things, right? Like, they, they've, they've been implementing these types of power sharing strategies for quite some time. I'd like to be able to kind of experience that on my own. So there is a plan to implement this power sharing model. Also, I'm not rigid at all. Like, I'm so loose with everything. Like, even in my trainings, I, I you know, I'm, I'm kind of getting tired of doing them alone, right? Like, I, I am interested in, in putting in the models of power sharing, so sociocracy, of democratized decision making, 
in it because because right now it's all it's it's just it's two of us so it's so loose like we come to a conclusion and we're both always just happy with it but when you bring more people on obviously you have to kind of formalize things a little bit more but yeah i am i am very interested in walking the talk in that in that respect Hmm. i i actually really love hearing that because it to me it sounds like and you kind of said it you're trying on these little experiments like experimentations with your like theories and what you um see for a different kind of world and you're inviting people into it which i think is really exciting when we think about you know this new way of doing work with this organizational justice lens something that stood out to me is the tagline of your company right decolonizing the workplace what does that look like? What do you mean? I mean, I imagine some of those things are the things that you've already articulated, but you were very intentional with those words. What do you mean when you use them? It's interesting you bring that up. I was very intentional about kind of taking that tagline. I have been giving this some thought. And I mean, no one's said anything to me explicitly. And I'm just being 100% candid. But like, I have been and l- l- let me say this, and I'll go into the reasoning as, as to why in the framework that I use to kind of talk about decoloniality. I, I realize that maybe that tagline may be detracting from the land back movement or the sovereignty movement because de- decolonization, I believe, has a very specific material meaning, right? Like it's it's the physicality of it all. It's land, right? So I don't want to be responsible for kind of watering down that term. So I think in subsequent things i i may kind of change it to democratize the workplace but specifically decoloniality i I chose because because of the elements of the ideological and physical worlds right so when i talk about equity and justice the structure the systems those are like I, i guess the tangible things right like you know you build the structure you have your you know wealth distribution equal pay and all those things and so my framing is in that so when you think of decolonization itself, it's specifically with regards to removing traces of colonization off of a given territory, decoloniality, part of it is decolonizing your mind, right? So the ideological uh, frameworks that I talk about a lot, and, and I believe capitalism is just an extension of colonialism. So the colonial ideas that were created over time to justify the extraction of land, labor, and resources from other human beings, predominantly our indigenous and black siblings, eventually our siblings in Latin America, East Asia, the theft of their land, their labor, their human beings and their resources was the physicality. But you had to create this, these mythologies about these people to be able to justify that resource extraction. You had to dehumanize them. You had to create ideas of like divinity for yourself and, you know, they're lesser than, and we know this throughout, throughout history as scientific racism, right? So those mythologies, I believe, didn't just die away, you know, when we started progressing a little bit, when we ended a different set, like certain segments of different systems of oppression, they just morphed, right? So if views of, for example, what we, what we feel is laziness in our employees have a very colonial sort of labor extraction route. All of these things are this, this colonial ideology that ends up manifesting itself in, in the granular details in the workplace. So the idea is to view white supremacy culture as extension of this colonial capitalist culture and then kind of work for all of us to start decolonizing and realizing that every person in the workplace should have command of their own time and labor. And then it is their right as a human being. 
Just because somebody works for you does not mean you have any sort of ownership of their time, ownership of their output, right? So the idea is to shift from this paternalistic thinking of being quote-unquote job creators to a more decolonial construct of everyone has shared power in the organization. And then my the, the level of output that I choose is dependent on me. Does that meet the needs of the organization at that uh, time? And that's the conversation we're coming at uh, as equals. So I have job qualifications, you have job needs, and we're at, at a level playing field here. Not I hold power and I'm going to bestow upon you this like beautiful job to, to which you owe everything to me and I will throw some perks your way so that you don't organize in the workplace. And that's, so that's, that's, the, that's the framework. So like having this sort of mindset uh, shift in recognizing the humanity of us all First off, like in recognizing that that labor is is extremely important and it is something intrinsic as a human value. Like you value your output, right? Like you value good work, right? Most people do. Like uh, if not everybody, right? When you when you kind of create, when you build something, you value that, right? And so you don't need somebody to aggressively push you into more and more output for less and less pay. The the, the whole thing is is rooted in a systemic and ideological framework shift. Hmm. I have a big follow-up for you. I really appreciate that reflection around the decolonization and how it does involve land back and repatriation of land, because I think for myself, I used to use decolonization a lot. And really, I read even Tuck's article where they did a lot of research and really talked about how decolonization isn't a metaphor. And when I read that, I kind of switched my gears around like, okay, like we're talking about watering down decolonization because we're not talking about material land. So I appreciate that reflection. And I think my kind of question for you and appreciation also is that part of the work that I read from you, like you make DEI very historicized, right? Like because a lot of DEI within organizations become so depoliticized, so ahistorical, it really loses the texture of why DEI, not why DEI came into force, but also like why we need to seek equity and justice. And so I don't know if this is just kind of me thinking in historical context, but I see a little bit of a tension with decolonization and democratization. And I don't know if it's because I'm looking at it from the sense of, you know, democracy from the colonial colonizers, let's just say, is driving this idea of democracy is what caused colonialism here, right? And white supremacy and the spread of that. So I'm just wondering, like, do you think of democratization a different way? Like, how do you define that in the workplace, like, given the historical and contextual nature of it? Yeah, it's a very interesting question and something I haven't really thought of before. But I will say that you know the the term, of course, it's it's, it's rooted in, in in Eurocentrism. It's a, it's a Greek term, like that. There have existed models of shared decision making capacity throughout indigenous cultures way before Europeans decided to kind of create, you know, the Greeks or, or Rome. Like it's been like even even before established, uh, you know, democracy in the United States. Like the Iroquois had some uh, degree of. You know, like decision-making, sharing capacity. They had they had their own version of of democracy. So I am very cognizant of Eurocentricism in 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 these kinds of things. So it's it's a trade-off, right? Like so, English language. But I do believe that it is it is extremely important to be informed from 
cultures all across the world in how how decision making and power and wealth was shared. Um, I mean, even before the concept of wealth was even a thing. So like how resources were shared across, like who decided like where resources went and how those decisions were made. And was it. So th- there are lots and lots of examples, pre-European sort of pre- like that, you know, that influenced American d- democracy. So I never really kind of gave that tension any thought. So in my mind, I mean, this may not always be fair, but I view like these sort of rigid hierarchies and authoritarian models as being like, you know, it's it's kind of rooted in, in fascistic systems. And I always think of sort of, you know, Europe. And it may not be fair because those types of models have existed also elsewhere, but how they've incorporated into our economic models like of late, the transition into capitalism, I think, is a European product. So I don't know. I don't like. I'm gonna have to think on that, marinate on that. Like I'm, I'm in no way trying to specifically promote European style democracy, right? Like, you know, my interest is the liberation of two things: one, your labor, and two, your identity in the workplace. If if I can find more and more examples of that being accomplished well in other societies, like, and not even just indigenous communities too, there's there's models of democracy that exist far beyond. Are, are, are much like prior and much more established than the export of democracy from from the French Revolution onward and stuff like that. So, so yeah, I mean, that's an interesting question. And I, and I do want to say for to you, Farzine, and also to anyone listening, like I think democracy has just, the United States has left a bad taste of democracy in, in me. So it might just be my own kind of re- reaction or response to democracy. But clearly knowing that there is big D democracy and small D democracy, right? Like, like my background really is that my, I'm from Laos and my homeland was carpet bombed in the name of democracy, right? To, to stop communism spread, so on and so on. So my family became refugees and came here. So I'm always like, ooh, democracy. Like I, I have to kind of work on disentangling the big D democracy and the small D democracy. And that's why the question came up and you so graciously <laughs> explored it with me. So I appreciate you going there. Yeah. Well, in that respect, I fully agree. There is a manipulation of what democracy, I wouldn't, I would not like for the most part, consider the United States as a truly democratic mm-hmm. country, right? Like how far we're alienated from our government in our government's decision-making means that like you know our votes don't really matter in the long run right like so we 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 believe in a representative democracy where we elect our leaders and those leaders are supposed to represent majority public opinion it doesn't right so you know i i was born in iran and like there was western meddling in the middle east for decades if not centuries like in in that specific name because like i i was having this conversation with somebody recently about like this this faux humanitarianism you know, it is this like sort of colonization through a false perception of democracy. And so, and in, at the core of it is it's, it's colonialism, right? It's, you know, at that time, it was great power politics between the United States and Soviet Union. My view of democracy is it's, it's you know, it, it has to be a local indigenous population to that specific, it has to be that movement. It's not an outside imposed anything, right? If it's an outside imposed anything, you could be the most democratic institution, uh, like country in the world. If you go to another country and be like, "I'm changing everything you're doing and imposing my way of governance structure on you," that is colonialism. Negate everything, every altruistic thing that your country has done, right? 
And so, no, I, I feel that. I think uh, that is a very, very important distinction. And I think that's the difference between like the notion of what United States is as a quote unquote democracy versus democratization. You know, the concept of democratization as a process, as a process for people to take power and distribute it amongst themselves in a revolution, like almost a revolutionary approach. Yeah, I appreciate that disentangling for me. I feel like I could talk to you about this forever because <laughs> I'm like so into this, but I also want to be mindful of your time. So we're going to move into some of our closing questions. Yeah, this has been super wide ranging, right? Blowing open the doors of what uh, D&I could be. I know you share a lot on LinkedIn and you've shared a ton on these airwaves, but is for the people who are listening, is there something that hasn't been said to people who are D and I practitioners, advocates, folks who are working towards these things? Hmm. Interesting. You know, one thing that I think is 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 relatively not discussed as much, and I th- I think the DEI area is still uh, a, a little bit myopic. Like in one of my taglines on my on my uh, LinkedIn profiles, anti-racism is global. So these systems of, of oppression, whether it's American imperialism, whether it's systems of racism here in this country, anti-environmentalism, right? Like patriarchy, hetero, patriarchy, heteronormativity, all these things I believe are interconnected. So I think expanding as stewards of the sole global superpower on the entire planet, which basically determines how people live all around the world, which we don't own up to that power as citizens in the United States, I think there needs to be a much greater conversation around global affairs in DEI, globalization, how are our companies going and imposing their specific models in these countries. I see the export of quote-unquote bro culture happening in a lot of countries abroad. They're buying into these like, you know, hyper-corporate like insert name of guru, you know, all these things that are super capitalist and just like, you know, pull up your bootstraps kind of mentality. It's being exported very, very problematically across the globe. And so we're not interrupting that here. We are learning to kind of fight it, but like they're just going somewhere else and and having an audience somewhere else, right? Like, so, so especially the more global hubs, like cities in India, like Singapore or Hong Kong, these kinds of things are, you know, becoming like the, the, the hubs of global capitalism. These kinds of ideas are being proliferated, right? So on another element to that is that I think we we in the DEI field can do a much better job of linking privileges ac- across diaspora, nation of origin, and here, right? So uh, I'm an Iranian-American, but I'm also ethnically Azerbaijani. And I've, I've, I've you know, in my 20s, I, I did a lot of work in ethnic minority rights. And I saw a lot of parallels to to, to systems of racialization in the United States and in Iran and in different countries that I was looking at, you know, Russia, Brazil, China, India. And so doing these comparative approaches. And so, you know, when, when we think of these diaspora communities that come here and do really well, and you have these model minority myths, most of them tend to be from privileged positions from their own con- countries. Not blanket all, right? But a lot of them, like privilege understands privilege. So if you're in a privileged uh, role, in a dominant in-group in your in your home country and you come here, you're going to be much more receptive to conservative ideals. So that's something that I think needs to be discussed, right? You know, take a look at like some of the, there's lawsuits happening within 
the Indian American community between castes. So like caste-based discrimination in the diaspora is is important. We tend to look at race in broad general terms, but these types of you know intercultural sort of tensions that exist and discriminatory practices and power distribution in those in the diasporas is also because they're Americans too, right? Like so there there's some degree of chatter about this, but I think somebody needs to blow this wide open and kind of really get a, get a, kind of have these conversations around like everybody from Russia is not their, their mother tongue isn't Russian or everybody from China like you know their mother tongue isn't Han or or some or things like that like right so there needs to be kind of greater discussions along along these lines I think for the DEI community and that's my personal opinion yeah and I think that somebody who will blow this wide open might be you Parsley. <laughs> Another question we always ask is, do you think that D&I is revolution or reform? It's, it's, it's reform. It's HR, right? It's, it's a pressure release valve on brutal capitalism. It does what it needs to to kind of keep the organization surviving. And you know, it's much more performative than it is revolutionary as an industry, I will say. I'm only saying that because I have, along this journey, met so many incredible people that are taking real systemic cha- approaches to, to change, and they are doing real work, and they are doing really exploring and uprooting some of these problematic legacy systems that exist in, in, in the workplace. So it's not, I'm not going to bash the field, but I will say the the people that you probably hear most from the people that not 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 all of course like but a lot of the time those that are getting the most business i will say the biggest <laughs> firms tend to be more interested in softening capitalism than uprooting it and my approach is i'm i'm very open about my anti-capitalism i, I don't think i can get any more than that on on linkedin like you know i mean there's there's elements of both i i will say one thing that it is not hard to spot the 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 people and organizations that are doing it for I don't say personal gain but I will say personal gain <laughs> I don't want to say it, but I'll say it you've definitely been a model of uh, humility and self deprecation and being grounded in the the still learning of all this one of the things that we like to do on the podcast is share our DNI confessions things that maybe we did early in our practice that we're like, what was I thinking? Or like mistakes that we've made and the things that we've learned from them. Connie, I know you have one that comes to mind while you think about it, Farzine. Yeah. So the one that comes to mind, it actually was inspired by our um, last podcast guest, Kim Tran. I was actually thinking back to my first like formal role in DEI. And this was when I was battling with a predominantly white institution of trying to incorporate equity, the language of equity into our work. And they just wouldn't have it. They're like, nope, we're just going to do diversity. And that is all. I got into fights with the board, with the board chair. And eventually I gave in. I don't know if it was like survival for I don't want to lose my job or I just didn't know how to push hard enough. But I think back to that and feel angry at myself for not pushing harder and really just settling on diversity because diversity is not even what the destination that we're reaching for. So that is my D&I confession for today. Mine is much shorter and it's really just the hypocrisy of 
self-care. I'm also inspired by, you know, our former guest, Kalyan Mendoza, asking us, like, you know, what are the things that you're going to do to take care of yourself? And as someone who's, you know, believes in restorative justice, the first relationship you have is a relationship with yourself. It's still a struggle. I told him that I was going to, you know, create my to-do list. Still haven't done that. So I want to own that for this audience that, you know, that's still a work in progress. Although, you know, one of my growth points in the last little bit has been trying to reschedule or get back engaged with therapy. There's a whole nother episode to go on about how just yelling go to therapy at people isn't isn't a solution. Definitely going through the process of finding the right person, working with insurance, all that. But um, I'm not always the greatest practitioner of self-care to have longevity in this work is my confession for today. Farzine, got one? So just one thing real quick. Uh, Connie, like, I always talk about survival with like, especially with people of color in, in, in the organization. So I totally feel you. I don't think you should, you should feel any way of that. I've actually gone the opposite end and, and, and been that like, you know, maybe a little too aggressive voice and was let go from my job. So you did what you had to do. So I, I respect that. Let, let me, oh my God, I'm going to out myself. So what, oh, this is so cringy. So when I, when I first started doing recruiting and, and stuff like that, I, I had internalized this whole like, oh yeah, like you know we we shouldn't we shouldn't do uh, diversity at the expense of qualifications. So in in my own internalized sort of oppression, I found myself at times like immediately having a negative response to people who had uh, kind of Middle Eastern names on their resumes, and so it was because like oh like you know we need to set a higher standard and that kind of thing or whatever like. It wasn't because I, I, there was no stand. Like, it was just this this sort of. I had this like when I first started. I was so just kind of like I'm I'm ready to do the work, but I don't want to be seen as like too woke or like you know too conscious or you know I don't want to be that guy. Kind of like everyone's just like oh he has a problem with everything and so so subconsciously and then I realized that it actually wasn't subconscious. I you know I caught myself like thankfully kind of recognize myself because like it's it's a very angry awakening moment when you realize that what you're doing is could harm people right so so that is why like i think since then i kind of i'm not always good at this but like if if somebody kind of like checks me on something i'm, I'm typically pretty receptive although i can't say that 100 because i do sometimes i do sometimes myself get a little fragile and but yeah so i think that yeah that's that's my story like Thank you for your transparency and vulnerability. Um, you know, the only thing that we can do is learn. We've already said, if you haven't followed Farzine on LinkedIn or connected with him on LinkedIn, that's definitely a must do after this podcast. We'll have that linked in the show notes. But are there other ways that people can support you and your work in the ways that you want to be supported? My website is uh, criticalequity.com. My list of services on there. Engage with me on, on my company on LinkedIn. Critical Equity Consulting, follow me. That is the extent of my marketing ability. I, I got nothing else. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Farzine, for being here, sharing your wisdom, your experiences. Definitely not the last time you and I or Connie will be talking, but for everyone else, thanks so much for listening. Thank you for having me. It was so good to reconnect with Farzine. That conversation was so wide ranging, not just 
thinking about that uh, revolution or reform question, but really blowing past all of those things, thinking globally, thinking organizationally, thinking uh, about the use of the phrase decolonization. What stood out for you, Connie? Yeah, so many things. I actually really appreciated how Farzine brought in such a global lens to the conversation around DEI and how one of the things that he had mentioned is that DEI in this country, at least, feels a little bit myopic and how there is that missing connection between the diaspora and homeland. And that just got me a little geeked out because I always think about my homeland and how I'm in how I am in the diaspora. But Honestly, there were so many things that stuck out. Like, (laughs) I'm trying to go through my mind and think about all of them. But that's one thing that really, really stuck out for me. What about you? Yeah, I really appreciated, well, one of the things, as a restorative justice practitioner, right, one of the things that he talked about, like, the democratization of work, and he mentioned doing this work and making decisions in circle, right? And, you know, most of the time when I'm bringing in restorative justice to to a space like people are always thinking about like how do we like repair harm and i think like that is a understandable question that people are asking but when we think about the roots of restorative justice thinking about how we are in circle together how we live in circle how we are interconnected and if we're really wanting to live into those values of interconnection and self-determination and community, we need to like figure out how to share that power and circle processes are a great way of doing that. That's not always something that I lead with in trainings, right? Because that's a totally different reorientation than just like, this is what a restorative process looks like, but it's such a key component of what that could be. And so I was really grateful he brought that in. The other thing that really stood out to me was the, the aspirational nature of like what about how he envisions organizational justice in the context of you know sociocracy uh, or democracy right Uh, i learned so many different words and even though he doesn't have all of those things figured out just yet there is so much space for us to continue to imagine um, because without imagine without imagination we're not going to be able to build the world that we want to live in Mm -hmm. Like little experiments that he's trying out, which I really love and the invitation to experiment with him. I I also think that like something that really stood out with this conversation and another pod of a podcast that we had on Kim Tran is the talk around labor unions and how there is more of a collectivity when we're talking about labor unions in a capitalist society. And I know you and I, David, have talked about this as well (laughs) offline. And I think I am still sitting with that tension of you know, like how can justice and equity be truly possible when we are functioning or trying to move through a capitalist or profit-driven organization or company, which is why I think that, you know, the work that you do with restorative justice and the work that I do around healing justice with uh, Dina through and now, it can start to chip away at some of these things because it is so much focused in right relationships, repairing harms, right? Like I, I continually think about harm reduction and how we can push in that area because it's never a guarantee that we can, you know, get to justice in the way that we envision it, right? Like I think one day, maybe not in my lifetime, but one day like building towards it, we can, but for now, right? What are the ways that we can chip away through relationship and through repairing any harms and this idea that we're all bound together, our, our fates are all bound together. And that's something that I think that is really inspiring despite how despairing I feel sometimes about this work. Yeah, no, it's really interesting because 
as you were sharing that, like, you know, not in my lifetime, I'm often someone who thinks about that, right? We're going to do this work, not just because it's going to benefit us in the immediate, but like seven generations. He mentioned the Iroquois, right? The the Haudenosaunee, right? As they are, as they call themselves. When I think about their principle of like seven generation thinking, right? Not just thinking about what is immediately coming, but what is the plan that you're going to make that is going to benefit generations to come? Like there, there's so much to that. And like, Kalyan Mendoza mentioned, you know, Angela Davis was talking about like, you know, one day they're going to be talking about white supremacy, not as the KKK, but as, you know, systems of entrenched power on CNN and everybody in the room laughed. And this was in 2015, right? That's happening now. And so, yes, we make those goals long-term, but we never know what our short-term actions, what the impact of our short-term actions are going to be, especially when so many of us are doing this work together or in different places simultaneously. Yeah, I love that. It's little emergences and little experimentations that we're building towards. Before we close out, one of the things that I wanted to highlight from Farzine's uh, LinkedIn feed is something he posted a little bit ago about the role of DEI leads in organizations, right? He talked about how they're always, maybe not always, but there's still definitely a need for that work within organizations. You know, even though we're mo- we want to move towards like a more organizational justice thing, there are things that are still going to pop up. And so instead of DEI folks being totally housed in HR, and we've talked about like why that's not uh, acceptable, thinking about them as maybe more of a union organizer for justice and really making sure that there's power and money along with that power to give folks in those roles, you know, the opportunities to really make change. Mm, Thank you for highlighting that because it is someone who's accountable to employees rather than to the company. And I think that's a powerful shift or a way to at least shift and share power that Farzine talked a lot about as his kind of model for future world building. Right. So when you go into that board meeting and have to argue for equity, you're backed by all these people who you're fighting on the behalf of, not beholden necessarily to the people on the board who don't want to make change. Yeah. Yeah. And that's a powerful move, I will say, (laughs) having fought with boards before myself. (laughs) And with that, we are at a wrap. What a great conversation with Farzine and With several guests in, it's actually really cool to see how there are some connections and linkages that are made across guests, even though they're not in conversation with each other directly. But sometimes it feels like we're all in conversation together through the podcast. So we'll catch you all next time. Thanks for listening. We'll be back with another episode next time. We'd also love to hear from you. Is DNDI revolution or reform? Send us your thoughts and juicy DEI confessions as a voice memo or text to revolutionorreform at gmail.com. Make sure you're subscribed on whatever platform you're listening on right now so you don't miss an episode. And while you're at it, leave us a rating or review and share this with a friend, old school, or you know, with Karen at work. Later, y'all. Bye.